So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So tonight's guest, Dakota Sharp, AUD, CCCA, is a clinical assistant professor at the University of South Carolina, a fellow podcaster, host of our sister podcast, On the Ear, also sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com, which is also eligible for ASHA CEUs 
And I do believe in progress for triple A CEs. It always makes me think of the car folks, but it's the ear folks. As well as a hubby and daddy to an adorable sweet baby boy, as well as Instagram Insight would offer a Marvel Universe fandom member. So needless to say, we are in good nerdy company tonight. Now, this past summer, we had Dakota on for First Bite. Um, he was on for episode 109, The Journey of Cochlear Implants. And y'all, it dawned on me, like literally in the middle of the episode, that we should do a follow-up episode, but one on ethics. So here's the why. Because Dakota has a fabulous way of just laying out the facts just as they are, served with laughter. And y'all, let's be honest, we're all coming down the home stretch of needing that coveted ethics class for our licensure. Huzzah! So kind of perfect timing. So Dakota, sweet friend, what kind of mischief have you been up to on the break between terms? And I'm super curious, did your little one actually open the presents this year or did he just like eat the bows and the wrapping paper? <laughs> that's that's a great question. He needs a little help. You know, we've got to start start the tear, but he will take it the rest of the way, which is good. Fabulous. And Fabulous. mostly mostly a lot of books this year. So the shapes are very simple in terms of ripping things up, but it, he is a lot more interested in the leftover paper than any kind of <laughs> gift we could possibly give him. That's awesome. Because Bear, um, after after Santa had um, completed the list, um, that's when Bear surprised everybody and said he wanted a penguin stuffy bigger than he is, um, because hmm. he saw it when we were getting um, cousin our my um, niece cousin Sammy. Sam, we went to get her her Christmas present, and I let the boys pick it out, and you know, of course, he sees a life size penguin, and then. Um, then Goose Danger was like, I really think Santa needs to bring me a Y-Wing. And I'm like, I'm sorry. It's hard. All of the Star Wars Legos kind of look the same. But you know what? They're not. And he can tell you which battle from which planet in which galaxy these things shook out. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is too much. How do you remember this but not remember how to spell your spelling words? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like... <laughs> He's a good historian, though. I mean, he's he's definitely keeping track of all of that. That's a very impressive. <laughs> Maybe fictional. But, yeah, fictional. You know. His fictional history is history, right? It's all it's all the same in the end. Oh my lord, we're fine. It's fine. This is your future, friend. This is your future. Oh, I'm so excited for that. Like right right now, we're in a bit of a Mickey Mouse phase, which is okay. I, I got no no hate for for the old mouse, but like. As you mentioned, I'm a bit of a Marvel nerd. I'm currently in, it's not a man cave because we both spend time in here, but we watch movies in here. And it's, yeah. if I told you the number of posters on the wall that were Marvel related, it, I'd probably get in trouble. So <laughs> I'm hoping one day he, he picks up the flame, you know, he takes the torch, but we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. That's, that's awesome. Um, my, my husband really likes old Godzilla movies. And so Ooh. he has a large quantity of Godzilla posters made by um, this local artist here in town. And uh, he's like, and I was like, baby, what are we going to do with all these? He goes, don't worry. One day the boys will also appreciate this, but like, not going to lie. We have a large quantity of Godzilla posters in oh our house. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh my stars. <laughs> yes. So that's what we've been up to on break between terms. Yeah. <laughs> same. Very okay. much the same. So, so y'all, we're going to go ahead and lay out our official disclaimers right now. Mm. Dakota nor I are ethics masters. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, no. <laughs> but at the same time, we clearly have laid out before us a code of ethics within ASHA. 
that explains what we are to do and not to do. And we've all taken our ethics classes. We all had ethics in grad school at one point in time. And yet we all face ethical dilemmas pretty frequently within our professional careers. Um, so we're going to talk about high level, big pictures, and then I'll give real world examples. And please know that some of the examples that come through, I get questions sent via the First Bite Instagram account, and I end up doing like a, a phone call with folks and giving them recommendations. So some of this actually comes from y'all and what y'all have experienced in your day-to-day -day walk. So um, please know that this is, we try to make this as um, real world based because we all have concerns and need to be able to come to the correct conclusion on what to do and how to proceed, right? Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like while my perspective probably isn't, you know, I wouldn't take it to court, you know, I wouldn't use this in your legal defense or anything like that. Um, I do feel like a shocking number of clinicians haven't actually read the code of ethics. They pay their dues and they check the box that says, yes, I agree to behave ethically. But if you were to ask them, like, you know, what are some specific principles of ethics that come from the code? I feel like a lot of people wouldn't be able to name anything, you know, because that's what makes ethics so challenging is that a lot of times it's defined as, you know, what you feel isn't right, you know, but you're if you're a member of ASHA or if you're licensed by your state, you've agreed to at some point some kind of minimum of ethical standards. Um, and it's important that you know them because so a lot of times ethical violations are incurred by people who didn't realize they were acting unethically, you know, because mm -hmm. they haven't read them. Exactly. Um, there was and I'm trying to find um, the email last week. ASHA sent an email out about why they were getting ready to No, it was an ASHA leader. It wasn't in the email. Um, the ASHA president wrote it in the ASHA leader because they're overhauling how we vote. Mm. And they said that in the last, um, how did she phrase it? In the last election for ASHA, less than 5% of the membership voted. Wow. That's y'all, yeah. that's us. We are ASHA. Mm -hmm. If you want something changed, then you have to vote, you have to participate and you have to engage. So to piggyback on Dakota saying we check the box, but do we actually do what it says? That's, that's the rub. We, yeah. we have to read the details and we have to play an active part in our association. Yeah. So that's, there's my shtick. Um, <laughs> neither one of us are paid by Asha to be here, but nope. we are both proponents of being active members, you know, yeah, very much so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then moving right along. Okay. So Dakota, who establishes rules for audiology and speech language pathology ethics? So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you can answer a little bit more speech pathology because the problem with audiology memberships is there's a lot of options. It's not just one big governing body. There's ASHA, there's the American Academy of Audiology, AAA, not the car AAA, but the audiology <laughs> AAA. Uh, there's the Academy of Doctors of Audiology. There are more specific subcategories for people who are in like the educational audiology sector that have their own govern governorship or whatever. So it, the problem is there's multiple organizations and a lot of audiologists are members of many, right? And so 
it can, you are signing different codes of ethics. There's a lot of overlap, right? There's a lot of yeah. the clinical practice is the same, whether you're a member of this group or this group. Um, but, you know, but the ethical standards do differ in some ways. And so it kind of makes it hard to keep up with, you know, who, well, who has the best ethics, you know, who's, who's writing the best rules here. And that's not usually going to be the reason why somebody picks one, um, you know, certification or membership body over another. It's usually more related to how much do they fight for our profession or what are they doing, you know, in the legal world or within insurance or, you know, how are they helping, you know, our discipline be better known to the general public and how are they pushing things forward in terms of uh, education for, you know, things like that. So I, I know that as audiologists, when we're kind of getting to that point of grad school where you're about to graduate and you've got to start thinking, I'm about to start loading all this money into these organizations, which one am I really going to be married to? Is it going to be multiple? You have to really think about your decision. And one of the, you know, one of the aspects of that is looking into their code of ethics and what they're not even just their code of ethics, like what the rules are, but what do they do when the rules are broken? You kind of want to understand that process too. Do you feel like do are, you know, maybe not the punishments where, you know, are the, are the sanctions good enough to, you know, be enforceable and be a good idea and make people actually follow along. That's one of the things you want to consider when you're looking at these groups. I've always thought that SLPs mostly only had ASHA. Is that right? Or are there other governing bodies for you guys? Um, ASHA's are only, ASHA's the only governing body across the nation. However, we have to have our state licensure in order to practice. Got it. Yeah. So the same is true um, for audiology. Yes. Now, within that framework, though, there is the interstate compact license that is working its way through. And forgive me, y'all, but I think it's up to 16 that have signed on to the interstate compact. So if you hold a state license in one state and it, that state is within the interstate compact, then you have um, uh, the ability to provide services in one of the other states without having to pursue an additional state license. Which is so critical when we think of ethically, how should we be providing services through telehealth, right? Yes. You have to have the license in the state you're providing the services, not just the state that you're located in. And so if you want to, if you provide, you know, I can think of um, an AVT, an auditory verbal therapist on our team, you know, that's a very in-demand kind of specialist. She's also mm-hmm. bilingual in Spanish. There's not that many bilingual AVTs. Her services are in high demand. It would be great if she could provide for people in Hawaii and you know all across the country. But unless she's licensed in those states, it would be unethical for her to provide services to those people. Yes. And to make it complicated, South Carolina is not yet engaged in the interstate compact license. Yep. Add in another layer that within South Carolina, unique to our state, If you're going to be an SLP in the public schools, you also have to have your uh, master's plus 30 and it's a teacher certificate that they make you, that they require that you carry. Mm. And we just had universal licensure pass um, this year, actually. And after it was approved by the Department of Ed, um, then they added another layer and they put the teacher cert back on school-based SLPs. Wow. I'm really surprised at that. I have a theory. But probably not for this episode, but it's just a theory. Uh, if you go to different states, that's not a requirement. Most other states, as long as you have your ASHA C's and your state license, you can practice in the public schools and they don't add another layer of um, responsibilities on your plate. Right? Got it. it is how certain individuals have chosen to 
review IDEA code mm -hmm. and there's other ramifications for requiring SLPs to have a teacher certificate as opposed okay. to OT and PT who do not require that layer of sure. regulations. Okay. Rar. Rar. Okay. More <laughs> advocacy folks. This is why you join state associations. Yeah, so for sure. You can get a killer lobbyist to advocate um, for these concerns. So you end up having to have your ASHA C's and your um, state license. Now, ASHA has just this year rolled out the SLPA certificate. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting because it sets a, um, a baseline requirement. Now, a lot of state um, licensure boards have their own level of requirement because ASHA just created the SLPA certification, right? But we've had SLPAs or SLTs, um, I've heard them called speech language teachers or just speech assistants. They have been allowed to practice for years in various states. Some individuals only have an associate's degree. Some individuals have a bachelor's degree. Some individuals have a master's degree in speech pathology, mm -hmm. but they did not pass the praxis. Sure. Um, some individuals did or did not have clinical rotations as part of their bachelor's in speech pathology. So ASHA, through the SLPA certification, try to create a minimum standard. Now, states like our state are minimum requirements in order to meet SLPA licensure in South Carolina actually exceeds the guidelines for ASHA. And that's okay. So what that means is that it's actually harder to get a state license as an SLPA in South Carolina than it is to have your certificate through ASHA. And part of that is because our state requires that you have a minimum of 100 hours of clinical within your bachelor's level training. Oh, yeah. That's going to make it kind of limiting then. Yes, very much so. Um, because I, I had a girlfriend that I went to undergrad with back in Virginia and her and her husband ended up moving to South Carolina, but we didn't have clinicals in our undergrad. So she couldn't get a job as an SLPA, which she a, could. A quick go Dukes, by the way. Let's just go ahead and throw that oh, in there. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. If you're not, um, we bleed purple. Uh, Dakota and I we both bleed did. purple. <laughs> we bleed purple. Oh my God. And if you went to grad school at JMU, you definitely bled purple. Double Duke. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so those are all, we so diverted from the original question already, by the That's way. That's okay. But I, I yeah. think it all, it all falls underneath it though, because your state licensure also has a code of ethics, mm -hmm. right? That you're agreeing to. And in audio, so I think SLPs, I don't, I don't know if you are required to have your C's. I think maybe, mm -hmm. is that true? Um, your CF and then your C's. In order to have your state license. Yes. Gotcha. So that is not the case in audiology. You do not have to have your C's. You just have to have your state license. There are some state licenses that would like to see you have some kind of, you know, either AAA or ASHA C's, some kind of, you know, certification into an accrediting body, but it's actually not required. So um, now there are certain instances where you do have to have those. Um, for example, if you're going to supervise a student who's a member of, uh, basically a university program that is accredited through ASHA, then if you're going to supervise them, their clinical hours are only going to count if you are a, if you are a clinician who has their C's um, rather than, you know, a clinician who just has their, their license, but you can still practice without your C's as an audiologist. Um, it's kind of one of the current, you know, debates within the audiology world is licensure versus certification and what does certification actually mean in terms of clinical practice 
And we have so many different, you know, accrediting bodies that it makes it really hard for people to say like, well, is one better than, why do I have to have one versus the other? And I think that's, that conversation is going to bubble up and boil in the next, you know, probably next year or two. Um, and we'll maybe see some changes within the different accrediting bodies for audiologists. But at this point, you don't have to have your C's to practice, but it does make, for example, in my case in South Carolina, it made applying for licensure a lot easier and a lot faster because if I have my C's, that means that I passed the praxis. That means that I graduated from, you know, a program that's in good standing. And then it made the licensing process in South Carolina a lot easier. So there's, there's pros and cons to each one. But at the end of the day, you are going to sign a code of ethics from your state licensure. Whether or not you're an ASHA member or AAA member, you would do the same. But even if you're just going to get your license, you are going to be held to ethical standards. And you know what? I brought the receipts, the South Carolina uh, state licensure code of ethics is actually located in chapter 115, article three. That's where they define the scope of practice and the ethical standards for audiologists. If you want to do a little, you know, research of your own and see what specifically you're, you're signed up for. And, and you can, everybody has them easily accessible, right? Oh yeah. So you can find the ASHA code of ethics and your state licensure code of ethics directly on their websites. Um, ASHA is asha.org backslash policy backslash ET 2016-00342 backslash. And that's the code of ethics for the 2016 iteration that has had tweaks and updates to it. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing. Your, your code of ethics are decided upon and any changes made to your code of ethics ends up having to go out to membership for votes so when we got back to you know we have to vote on um any changes made that's because it's it's part of our bylaws so even if you're even if you're a member of your state association i don't think a lot of people realize that by being a member of your state association there's also codes within your state association right yeah so they can remove your ability to be a member in good standing if you make bad choices. That's what we call it in our family. If you're a yeah. bad choice. <laughs> it's a way for everybody to understand. Yes. yes. I think uh, when it comes to just doing like a little quick aside, when it comes to like being sanctioned for an ethical violation, uh, the way that ASHA sets it up is it starts with a reprimand, which is basically just you're found to have violated, you know, an ethical standard and it's private it's usually something very minor and asha tells you you've been reprimanded you broke the rules but otherwise it's kept to that then there's censure which if you've ever been flipping through the asha leader and you've seen that page where it's kind of like it feels like a gossip column but it's actually much more serious than that but it's like this person did this bad thing and you're like oh my gosh that's so awful like why but that's actually the second step for you know more serious violations um, it's basically just a public a public reprimand of your ethical violation. Then it can lead to suspension of your membership and you know and also sometimes certification. And then all the way to you know being totally revoked where you're not allowed to be an ASHA member anymore. And that limit you can't practice yeah. because we have to have our ASHA certification. So if it yeah. hits that level, there's your career. Adios. Yeah. And and that's what makes it interesting. I think this came from the 2016 update to the code, um, but basically that now requires you. So let's say that you um, had an ethical violation just through your state licensure. It had nothing to do like, or your state licensure, I guess, investigated an ethical 
violation and they found you to have you know had a violation it's actually your responsibility to tell asha that you had an ethical violation because your state your state your state uh licensure might not send that off to them and so you are required and so it's an ethical violation in and of itself to not report your own ethical violations which can get you into even more trouble so i think that was a change in 2016 because i could be wrong but i i think i remember reading that asha doesn't have ethical investigative power like they don't investigate into these things they just require that their members report um when a violation has occurred and so it's it's so important that if this does happen hopefully it never does but if it does happen you have to report it to you know whoever your accrediting body is or your you know your certification uh group because if they can investigate you and you never disclose it then you know as far as they're concerned nothing happened and that's actually not true so it's really important. One one other thought. Uh, one of the biggies that changed with the was the 2016. I think it was the 2016 iteration. Was that if you have a concern about a colleague in a different profession acting unethically, you have to make you are now ethically responsible for reporting that colleague to their licensure board or to their sanctioning body. Interesting. Yeah. So like, say your coworker is a physical therapist, but you observe them to be drinking on the job, or if they appear to come in under the influence, then you are now ethically responsible for reporting them. And if you don't report them, then it is your license has, you've compromised yourself. Wow. And I I think that that's totally fair. You know, I think we have to take the onus upon ourselves when we see people acting unethically, just like, you know, I mean, hopefully just like you would a family member, you know, you Mm -hmm. would, you would, you would take this up to the highest authority to make sure that they get help. I mean, because a lot of times if someone's acting unethically and if they don't realize or if they aren't doing something about it, you know, someone needs to step in and we can't just turn a blind eye when especially this is going to impact, you know, patient care. It's it's a a horrible thought. Yeah. 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 I know those, those were, I, I remember when that change came through that that was like, that was like a huge progressive step. Um, and I, and at the time I remember thinking, well, shouldn't we already be doing that? But yeah. it was, it was not embedded within. Sure. So that was, that was, um, kind of some big changes. Okay. So let me, let me pull on here before we go into the next part where we like start talking about ethical dilemmas, your ethics board, it's, it's composed of members that are appointed is my understanding. If I'm wrong, then I'm wrong, but your licensure board who it for your state are also colleagues and professionals mm-hmm. in the state of South Carolina. We have to have a layperson somebody who serves on the board um, and they're not supposed to have um, um, SLPs or audiologists directly on staff. They're just, and they're, they're not even supposed to be able to refer to SLPs because they're supposed to just be a, um, a lay person, like a, um, like maybe a physician in the community or like a a GI that is aware of our profession, but doesn't make referrals um, or, you know, that, that kind of position. We also have to have a ratio of audiologists to speech language pathologists. You know, they always try to have at least one audiologist on the board. Now, 
sometimes it's difficult to fill your state board because you have to go through a vetting process. Like here in South Carolina, you have to be nominated. Your governor has to sign off and approve your appointment. And it's a two-year term. But it's two years, not paid. You have to go to meetings and you have to have major in-depth training by your um, state licensure legal team, which is because you're making decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a huge list of do's and don'ts. Um, if a say you're on your state licensure board and now you have our, but you um, have colleagues and they call and ask questions, they can't, like they have to be careful what kind of questions they answer, right? Because yeah. it could in turn put them in an ethical situation, an ethical dilemma. So it's all very, I say that because we need people across this country to volunteer their time and talents because you may not think that you have the skill set when in fact you actually do. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And oftentimes there's someone who's there to teach you. Yes. You know, it's, it's almost, I don't think there's ever been a situation I've been in where I've said, you know what, I don't really think I know enough about that, but I'm going to volunteer. And there wasn't someone who knew more who was willing to teach me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so <laughs> that old saying, be teachable. You don't know at all. Yes. That's, um, yeah. um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just laughing because Goose and I go around this. He goes, mom, I could teach you more about star Wars. And I'm like, yeah, but Right now is not the moment where mom's ready to be taught. I'm not ready to learn that. Like, let's go back to like working on studying whatever the homework is that you're trying to get out of. But, you know, you're cute kids. Yeah, we okay. can't always be teachable to every cause. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, my. So, like, was there anything else you wanted to get into when it came to, like, who makes up these boards and things like that? It's our peers. That was my biggest yeah. was that it's, yeah. it's our peers. Now, I have noticed that at least at a national level, oftentimes it is a lot of academic faculty, but that makes sense because they're teaching the coursework, right? Sure. But we also need practitioners because you're the ones in the trenches doing the work. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's something that I have seen. And to my knowledge, I believe it's also a two-year term at the national level. I could be wrong, but I think that Got it is a two-year term. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I think that's a good point. I think when it comes to, you know, understanding who's setting the rules, that it's not just some omniscient hand in the sky passing down judgments and rules. Yeah. It's the people that we practice with, that we learn from, and that we also are teaching in the process. So, yeah, yeah I think that's a good point. One, one thing I did want to put out there is that our ethics have been around since 1925. Wow. But it was in 1952 that it was like actually more formal. But uh, I, I just think that's very, very important to know that since ASHA was founded, we have had codes. Like we have had, yeah. um, we've had guidelines that we're supposed to adhere to and follow. So I just, I, I thoroughly appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. So before we switch into like the functional stuff, I did want to say that y'all need to check out the practice portal. There's, we, yes, it is the month. We have all paid Asha all of the monies this month in particular, which always backs up right to my annual website renewal. So I'm like, oh, 
375 to Ash in December, 375 to Heartwood in January. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, ten, ten, ten. It's expensive. But I say that because on the practice portal, they have right in there professional issues. And there's actual blogs. Like if you go to the Code of Ethics page, they have all the decisions. They have issues and ethics statements. And they have an Everyday Ethics blog series. So, um, which, which you can find functional resources on. Also, yeah. there's a new book out. I don't know if you've seen it and I'm kind of contemplating getting, um, having the students pick it up, uh, for clinic class for the spring term. And it's all about cultural components. I'm trying to see if I can find the picture for it. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, there was a 20% off coupon and I saw it. Oh, it was on LinkedIn. Asha had it on LinkedIn, Ooh. but it was all about cultural considerations and even the ethics embedded within that. And the example of the case that they gave was a bilingual SLP was called out to do an evaluation for a child that um, whose family came here from Guatemala. They were uh, a, a rescue the child was bilingual, spoke Spanish and a Mesoamerican um, native language and was in a foster situation with an English speaking only family and was able to follow directions from if it was presented in Spanish, but didn't speak any English, but was able to, I mean, there was no signs of language delay in sure. the native language. And the practitioner, the questions posed were, what do you do with a child that's presented with trauma and has been taken away from her family or they can't, and there was, it was a really in-depth case study, but that's our reality. What is culturally appropriate? And I was like, that's, that's a grace. That's a great clinical case study. 100%. It gave functional responses. This is what you should do based off of this guidelines, these code of ethics, but especially for a newer clinician or um, somebody that's changing scenarios. I I appreciated that it was like the appearance was, it was a little bit more in depth with like private practice. And so I would, I would recommend it's cultural conversations or cultural considerations, I think is the name of the book. And there's a 20% off coupon. I like coupons. So (laughs) that's, that's a great point too. Like uh, I feel like one of my, you know, personal mantras is I don't have to figure everything out. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? There of a lot of the situations I'm going to run into, whether it's like clinical practice or especially things ethically like that, that are just like very complex. I don't have to like be the deciding opinion. There is somebody who, you know, who like I either I'm a membership of an organization or a mentor, or, you know, there's someone who has more experience than me who can probably speak more knowledge into this situation than I could. You know what I mean? So that's, that's why these, these codes are so, you know, they're so important, but they're so useful. They're not just there to be like laws and punishments. They're there to help in these situations where you feel kind of like, this is too complex. I don't even know what the priority is here. Yeah. I don't want to break any rules, but I want to do what's best for this patient too. It, it goes w- well beyond not getting in trouble, you know? And I think utilizing these resources is so critical for clinicians. And oftentimes they feel like they have to navigate it on their own when that's just not the case. And you get free advice. Yeah. So you can contact 
you can contact ASHA if you're a member, I'm going to butcher this an acronym, the American <laughs> Academy of Private Practice Speech Language Pathologists and Audiologists. Bam, I got it all out. Nailed it. You are, yes, with your membership, you're allowed to call and contact their lawyer um, for free legal advice. I think it's twice a year. And wow. that's right. And and that's where a lot of private practice people get have complications is in billing or in contracts or in writing a non-complete compete clause or getting out of a non-compete clause or how do I go about billing and coding? That's included in your membership and they give you the advice for free. So uh, we have a, um, Skisha has uh, a code of ethics liaison, a person that you can contact and reach out to. But so yes, hats to you. You don't have to know the answer. You have mm -hmm. to know the source and those yep. sources exist. Yes. Exactly. Perfect. Yes. Okay. So some of the things on here, the practice portal and what I love on when you actually go into the practice portal, they have in their documentation and healthcare documentation in schools and documentation of audiology services and documentation. I mean, I struggle with staying on top of my documentation. Like, like everybody has their weak point, right? Like I do struggle with that because it's, a, it's a lot to, to handle at the end yeah. of the day, especially in the past when I've been worried about productivity measurements and standards and blah, blah, blah. But one of the biggies is it tells you what's required for billing purposes. So with documentation and healthcare, making sure that your notes, your evals and your notes document that it is medically necessary um, and that the goals and treatment are functionally relevant. And I'm reading it straight from there. And does the service add to the patient's interdisciplinary care and overall health? Y'all, we are supposed to be working interprofessional practice with our colleagues. Get out of your silo, baby, and engage with peers. So, sorry, huge soapbox. Okay, but take me through. What do you see? What are some common dilemmas that you see audiologists facing? In okay, that's a, that's a great question. I'm excited to get into this, too, because I'd love to hear some, some SLP dilemmas. I feel like it's something... I know I don't get to hear about as much, but one thing, so I feel like we hopefully, hopefully most audiologists and SLPs have somewhat of an understanding of each other's scope of practice. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot, not all the time, but a lot of the time, some of the more easy ethical violations can be you just practicing outside of your scope, right? You want to practice. There's a, there's a great uh, saying that I heard from someone who really is an ethics you know, expert. They said like, we want to we want to perform at the top of our scope. I think that's what they called it, right? You want to do, you want to be doing everything possible at the highest possible level within your scope without breaking that. But the thing is, our scope can kind of change over time, right? So you need to make sure you're on top of what's included within your scope of practice. Um, something that's becoming a little bit more common lately are screenings uh, within audiology that are more interdisciplinary. So specifically... Okay more and more audiologists are including screening. So we already can do screenings for hearing and balance. That's just been a part of our scope since the very beginning. More recently, we're screening for more mental health related things, cognitive impairment assessments. Um, our clinic recently just started utilizing the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA, for our patients who are um, going through the process of seeing if they qualify for a cochlear implant. And then depending on their score, you know, we can take that into account, send that information back to their physician. We're working on setting up a referral network to, you know, some neuropsych or some uh, neurologists 
uh, for people who you know have a score that isn't satisfactory for that. But there's a lot of different you know cognitive impairment assessments. Now, what what would be within your scope would be to you know deliver a cognitive screening, but not to make a cognitive diagnosis or you know any kind of treatment or therapy options based on whatever you think is happening with them cognitively. But I do think, and and so this is going to be more like my personal take on an ethical thing that I see a lot is whether it's a cognitive impairment, like let's say for example, dementia, you have every suspicion because you work a lot with older adults that the patient you're currently seeing is showing some signs of early dementia, right? You have the experience, you've seen it in the past. Now, it wouldn't be ethical for you to say, hey, I think you have dementia. You need to you need to start taking some kind of supplement, you know, like that would be totally irresponsible and unethical. But I think it's also unethical to not recommend that they follow up with their primary care physician or for you to not encourage them to see a specialist of some kind for that. I see the same thing in P- I do I you know my passion is pediatrics and there are audiologists who aren't as experienced with pediatrics who if they were to see, you know, a child who like is neurotypically, you know, different, who presents with a lot of the signs of autism, they would never mention anything to the parent. And maybe it's a totally oblivious parent. And the child is being seen for a hearing test prior to speech therapy, and they're four years old, and they don't have any words yet. And their behavior is, you know, is not typical at all for someone, you know, for a typically developing peer, but they would not feel comfortable telling the parent, hey, they're exhibiting signs of something that make me concerned that the problem is not hearing. It might be more behavioral related. Have you talked to your doctor about that? They just avoid those conversations entirely. And while you know, I don't think the ethical code says that you have to be having these conversations. I do feel like we have an ethical obligation to talk to families about concerns like this and not let them just go on being oblivious, wondering, because you're just going to tell them, well, their hearing's normal and have a good day, you know, and they're going to leave thinking, okay, well, then what is the problem? I don't know. I'm even more confused, you know, and I, I do think it's an ethical issue that I see in audiologists now in terms of practice. That is principle of ethics, one rule of ethics, B, individuals shall use every resource, including referral and or interprofessional collaboration when appropriate to ensure that quality service is provided. Because I have had supervisors flat out tell me, Michelle, you can't make referrals. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? The child's presenting with signs and symptoms of X, Y, and Z, insert whatever the comorbidity looks like. And they're like, yeah, but it's really upsetting the family that you encourage them to see a developmental pediatrician. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I have to make that referral. I have to reach out and call the PCP or the pediatrician and say, look, the child's presenting with signs and symptoms of I have a concern for X. Mm -hmm. Can you please refer to here? And, And honestly... Really truthfully, y'all, if you're in a place where they are not wanting you to make referrals, then you need to take a long, hard look because they're asking you to compromise their ethics. And I understand there are some individuals who are uncomfortable going down a new journey and a new path because... I mean, it's hard. They're tough conversations. They're they're not easy conversations. Yeah, but... We're speech language pathologists, which means we're supposed to identify the disorder and the disability. You're Mm. supposed to go there. And so for us, we have to make the referral. And if you don't request the referral, then you have 
you have done wrong. Yeah. And that's, and that's hard. But, and then there's also the catch where we get into where we don't know what the signs and symptoms are like, um, selective mutism that doesn't come up very often, but when it does, do you, are you aware of the signs and symptom of what you're looking at? Right. Mm -hmm. And because you may think that the child on our end, I may think that the child just really can't hear. And that's why they're not responding when in fact they go get their hearing test and everything's hunky dory, but we've got trauma. We've got neglect. We've got other factors, right? Yep. Okay. So here's, here's one that's um, come up and it came up from you with bear, right? So this happened years ago before you came to USC. Um, Bear had repeat hearing tests here in town with a different audiologist and a um, different ENT office that we no longer use. Um, and the audiologist perforated Bear's eardrum. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Blood came popping out of his ear. What, what were and they doing that could have done that? The little thing that has the... I, I know the word, but I don't know the word. It's the, the thing that they... Yeah, you put no, you put the thing in the ear, and then she pushes the buttons, and it sends off the sounds. Tympanometry. Yes, perforated what? his eardrum because when she pulled it out, the piece of oh. plastic she pushed it in too far, mm-hmm. and Bear had a meltdown because you perforated my two-year-old's eardrum. And the ENT turns to me because Bear's like screaming, having a meltdown. Actually, I had a student with me. I had um, Leslie with me because I was like, you know, if this is a great learning opportunity, why don't you come see what um, a hearing test looks like out in the community? Because she'd only seen one done at um, at y'all's clinic. Mm-hmm. And so the entire time, like, I love my Leslie. She, her face tells every emotion that she has. <laughs> And so like, she had this horrified look and let me tell you what my mama bear came on when this lady did that to my son and the ENT sat us down and was like, your son's presenting with signs and symptoms of autism. I'm like, I'm sorry. There's a lot of things my son's presenting with and it's not ASD. Your audiologist just perforated his eardrum. Yeah. And I found out after the fact, cause I didn't know this that every hearing test he failed should have been an automatic referral to early intervention. Oh yeah. That early. Yeah. If that was his first diagnosis. Yeah. And he failed, I think three or four before we made it over to y'all. Cause Leslie was like, you can never go back to these people. You have got to come to the clinic. And like, that's how I met like all of the lovely colleagues that you work with. And um, that's where Bear started getting speech therapy, but I didn't know any of that. And I worked in early intervention and I did not know that a failed hearing screen was an automatic qualifier, but that was super frustrating to be the speech pathologist whose son had been harmed by a colleague. And it was an accident. It was not malicious. Things happen, right? Her behavior afterwards was not okay. But um, I, I say this because shouldn't they have known that a failed hearing test, like repeat failed hearing test is an automatic qualifier, like an automatic referral. Like that was, that's, that's a, a mom. That's a heavy mom. I think, question. yeah, I think that's a good question. And I, so again, I, like I said, very passionate about pediatrics and the problem with, you know, there's, especially in smaller, more small towns, there's not a big enough population base of pediatrics for a practice to be solely providing those services so maybe 
the audiologist sees 90% adults and they're 90% doing things with hearing aids. And then they see the occasional child for things. And so they don't have ex as much experience testing the child. They don't have as yep. much experience knowing the system in terms of EI and the referral process for that. They don't have as much experience in fitting a hearing aid. And it's not the same thing. It's I'm sure you can speak to being an SLP with adults versus children. It's not the same practice. It's You can't just so simply flow between the two. Or I, I guess a better way to put it is you can't see 90% of one group and 10% of the other group and, and expect your clinical See, services yeah. to be as competent. Yes. You know, and I think we see that a lot. I, I, I don't know, you know, as much where I stand on it, but I do know people who would say it's unethical for an audiologist who doesn't primarily see pediatrics to be involved in like the diagnostic process for that because they're so unfamiliar. They don't have connections to EI resources or who to refer to or how to, you know, get involved in that. And, you know, the, the process for programming a hearing aid is totally different and, keeping them entertained while you're doing that. I mean, like it just takes so many other skills. Is it, you know, I, I don't know where I stand on, is it unethical for them to provide clinical services? I don't think so because sometimes that's all you've got, but I do think it requires an awareness of their limitations. You know, it's still within their scope of practice to do all of those things, but are you completely competent? Is it okay for you to pre be providing those clinical services? It's a little bit more, you know, murky. You know, and I, I think your your case is a perfect example of that, where someone is providing services in something where, here, I'll give you another example. And I'm sure you have something in speech too, but in audiology, you know, it's hearing and balance, but the balance system is very, very complex. And diagnostic testing, I would love for you to just like watch some videos of vestibular testing. It is wild. The machinery they use, the equipment, the goggles, it's like just so far not related to hearing testing. You know what I mean? But it's, it's all within the same scope. And so I'm trained in that too. But if someone were to say, Hey, I want you to come over here and like do this balance test. Like technically that's within my scope of practice, but I do not have the competence to diagnose someone with a balance disorder at this point. It would take much more training, you know, much more practice with that thing. And so I think the same can be true in a lot of different areas of practice. The code of ethics says you have to stick to your scope, but it also says you have to perform your services competently, you yes. know? So I, I think it's one of those more, one of those more gray areas, but I think where I stand on it is more, I wouldn't feel comfortable providing a service unless I could say, you know, with authority that I was competent and comfortable. No, that's, it's how I feel about stuttering. Once if like, if, sure. if I get, if I get a referral, but the child also has a PFD, then I'm like, mm, okay, I'll do this one, but you need to see my colleague for the other, because yeah. that. It's technically in the large scope of practice of a speech language pathologist, but not mine. So sure. yes, but make, but making the referral, if you're uncomfortable, exactly. then make the referral uncomfortable. Yeah. We sound that word out because that was a spelling word. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my, one of my uh, pieces of advice I give to students to uh, the students that I teach and then the students that I supervise in clinic is wherever you land, the first thing you should do is set up your referral network, whether that's just you go through ASHA and you ask, so like as an audiologist, who are the SLPs near me? And like, let's say specifically, I'm working in pediatrics, who are the SLPs who work with, you know, child language, who is, what is the EI system in the state that I'm located? Who are some ENTs I could refer to if there's a medical problem? Like you need to set up your referral network 
first because that first kid who walks in the door, they might have all of those problems, right? And if you didn't have that system set up, you're like, okay, so there's not much I can do. You're going to need to see someone else. However, I don't know where to send you. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to get in that situation. So the first thing I did when I moved here was, all right, I need to find out who's providing services. Where are they? You know, and I'm going to see people who drove from a couple hours away. I don't know who provides services out in, I don't know, Aiken, you know, like I'd have to look that up still, but and that's, honestly, I'm so new to South Carolina. No disrespect. Aiken could be five minutes away. I literally don't know, but like, it's an you hour. Know, You're good. Yeah, the, the point stands that you need to have your network set up quickly because you're going to run into these cases and ref- you're again, you can't help everybody. You're going to have to refer. So you need to know where to refer to. Yes. Okay. So one of my big problems that I get called all the time about is billing and coding, right? Mm. Because that's, and that's y'all, you, you guys post the messages on Instagram and like, I, I give my phone number and I give my advice and my recommendations and two cents for what they are just because I'm there to help. I've been there, done that. Right. Sure. But one of, especially for younger clinicians that don't know it, y'all please go look up the ASHA super bill. Okay. Yeah. The ASHA super bill has every single CPT code available to you that are that fall within audiology speech language pathology scope of practice okay so here's the deal you do your comprehensive evaluation and you assign an icd-10 code right and normally the icd-10 codes that i see are r1312 oral pharyngeal dysphagia and that could be due to icd-10 code of the patient having down syndrome or icd-10 code of the patient having an intraventricular hemorrhage in utero. I'm just giving examples, right? So normally my patients have multiple ICD-10 codes and that's okay. They also may have R41.841 cognitive communication deficit in addition to R1312, which is often the case, right? Like most of my babies are really complex and they have a language um, neurogenic baseline language disorder as well as a oropharyngeal dysphagia. Yeah. So when they go to do, when I go to do my treatment sessions, my treatment sessions, I'm doing a lot. I may be utilizing in the one hour that I'm working with that patient, 92507, which is treatment of language, 92526, which is treatment of swallowing. But what if that kiddo also has an AAC device that we're learning to have functional communication and engagement with? I may drop that ICD, I'm sorry, that um, CPT code, uh, current procedural terminology code as well. And to... 92609. I can't remember that one. <laughs> but you know what? I know where it is in the button in the drop down yep. button. Right? And I say this because South Carolina is an anomaly. We are one of two states where 92507 is still a timed code. In most sure. states, it's an untimed code. If you go to North Carolina, it's a set rate. So that means you drop 92507 and you get paid a flat rate regardless of however long you're there. And 92526 is an untimed code. You get paid a flat rate regardless of however long you are there. Well, what happened here locally was up until Skisha Advocacy, we didn't have access to 92526, right? Um, that or any of the AAC codes, like they just weren't accessible to us. They wow. only had us using 92507. Yeah. Which I said, that's actually causing us to have a code of ethics violation. It because, is, yeah. Yeah. Because a, a treatment of swallowing is not treatment of language, right? Yep. 
So we got the code, we got it approved, which was, we, we had a lot of advocacy work, but the reimbursement rate was lower. Well, that's, that's fine. It is what it is. We have mm-hmm. no ability. I mean, like we don't, we can't go in and say, you have to give us this code and pay us this amount. Right. Yeah. But it threw everybody's mind because when they added the new code, they added it in an untimed rate. They still haven't updated 92507. I, I anticipate it happening um, and moving to an untimed code. But a lot of folks were upset that the rate was lower. So a lot of private practitioners have gotten um, guidance from their superiors to basically maximize their bill. So they say, oh, well, if you're there and you're working on language for an hour, then you can do language 92507 for the hour. And if you're doing feeding, you can add that in two. But if you add those two timed ins, that kicks you out over the 60 minutes and bumps you into 75 minutes. You see what I'm saying? Sure. And that's not appropriate because if you go directly in to um, your code of ethics, principle of ethics for part E, individual shall not engage in dishonesty, negligence, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. So, and there's, there's other ones there, but if you are misrepresenting what you are doing in your time that you are there, to increase the financial piece of it, that's unethical. Sure. So what can you do? Easy. You advocate. If you are concerned that your state's reimbursement rate, wherever you are, is not commiserate with the um, national rate or even your regional rate for reimbursement, well, then advocate for it. But you cannot change what you are um you're coding. Now I had a dear friend who called and she goes, look, I know I'm putting in the right, the right CPT codes, but when I go back into our billing system, somebody's going behind me and changing the CPT codes so oh, that no. we're getting first. Yeah. Their billing person. She caught their billing person who's a lay person who has nothing to do with having a license, changing the CPT codes to maximize reimbursement. She left, she left the job, she left the company, she reported them, she did everything that was right. But like, it was, she got to the point where she was screenshotting her codes and what she put in and saving them in a secured file on her secured laptop um, because she was so afraid because what they were doing was, that's that's insurance fraud. Yeah. And she was like, this is not okay. They cannot do this. And, um, you know, when she called, I was like, honey, I was like, that's your, you got to report and you got to get out. And, and that's hard because that's, what if you have a non-compete clause? What if you are working for one private practice company that says you can't take a, another position within a set period of time within a set geographical area, but you've got a mortgage payment and then you find out that this is going on. Mm-hmm. Personally, I would pick up the phone and call Asha and be like, "Oh my God, what do I do?" Yep, <laughs> same. Right, but there's a reason why I started my own private practice because I didn't want to get stuck in these positions. Mm-hmm. But those are 
though the, that's a that's a very common concern and common complaint. So I would um, make sure that your documentation for what you're doing in your session is correct, and yeah. and, and the billing by the billing piece specifically. I can talk; it's fine. We're adulting. <laughs> but, um, okay, now I have a question for you. Okay. What about hearing aids? And forgive me, this I is. Wanted, I wanted. I was hoping you would ask me that. Yes, because I don't understand. Like. There was a rule in North Carolina a couple years ago where, like, they said you had to be an audiologist in order to write prescriptions or give recommendations on hearing aids as opposed to just being a hearing aid salesman. And, like, what is all of that drama about? Yeah, there's a lot to it. Well, first of all, I'll have you understand, many years ago, like, early on in the profession, we're thinking, like, the 50s and 60s, audiologists were not allowed to fit hearing aids at all. It was considered a conflict of interest because if you're diagnosing the hearing loss, well, would it be a conflict of interest for you to then provide the treatment for the problem that you just diagnosed? Would that incentivize you to overdiagnose people? Do you see the problem there? Yes. Yes. Then they realized, well, if people just act ethically, then no, it's not a problem because many, many different specialists both diagnose and treat disorders. So I think that that problem was resolved pretty quickly. But there are people, there are hearing instrument specialists. Uh, they have different names in different locations who do require licensure, but they're, they can, you can become a hearing instrument specialist with a high school degree. And as long as you pass the you know, certifying test for that. And you have to have a certain number of hours where you work underneath or, or uh, observe with an audiologist who provide, you know, some minimal hearing aid care. But it is a really strange area because hearing aids are sold, right? And they are not, there are very, very, very few insurances that reimburse or pay for hearing aids. So a lot of the times for most people, including Medicare recipients, paying for hearing aids is an out-of-pocket expense. And on top of that, there's six, there's six different hearing aid companies. And I think the easiest way to understand the hearing aid company model is to think of it like car companies. You've got, you know, Toyota and Ford and Chevrolet, and they all make the same thing. They all make cars, but they all have different features and reasons why you might pick one over the other. And, you know, preference by experts that is that if that's a way to think of it. And then within each model, you know, every couple of years they come out with a new one and it's got new things and it makes it better for the person who's using it. But it makes it really hard because in some for some audiologists a huge aspect of their care is sales related. You're selling a product. And if you're in a position where you also receive a a commission. Yeah, if you're on a commission-based model for your job, well, then you kind of are depending on hearing aid sales for supplementing your income, right? And that's that's the model for a lot of private practices too. Like that's how they keep their lights on. Now, a lot of them are also providing great clinical care. And I know we're like coming up really close to the end of our time, but there's a couple of like big hearing aid ethical things that I want to touch on that I feel like are really important. And even if you're an SLP listening to this, if you have a family member who's going to get hearing aids, I want to make sure you understand these things. There is a process that is considered best practices known as real ear verification. It's a specialized piece of equipment that an audiologist used to measure the output of the hearing aid within the person's ear canal, or if that's not possible within a box measuring, you know, a certain aspect of the acoustical properties of their ear canal, because unless you do this process known as real ear verification, you have no idea what the hearing aid is actually doing in that person's ear, right? You can just guess that it's doing a good job, but you can't really know unless you do real ear. And there is a shocking number of audiologists, you know, it's, it's getting better, but there's still a shocking number of audiologists and a lot of hearing instrument specialists or, you know, 
they sometimes they're called hearing aid dealers. They have different names who don't do real ear. And so if you have a loved one who is getting hearing aids somewhere, please go and find out, do they do real ear? Because if not, you might want to go to another practice because it's such a critical aspect of care that often goes overlooked. And I consider that unethical to not be providing whatever's considered best practice. If you're not following best practice, that's unethical. And so they need to be receiving real ear. And then I had another one too. Oh, uh, this is this is a big one. So you can't you can't like provide so this is this is a big problem I've seen at uh, when I was observing at a private practice in grad school. You can't advertise a free hearing test to draw business in. Oh, so, self-referrals. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. So but a lot of times like audiologists will see that as well, it's a great marketing tool. Like I'll offer them a free hearing test. And then if they have hearing loss, then I can show them, Hey, this is what you need to help with your hearing loss. And like, technically that makes sense. You're hoping to bring people in. A lot of people don't realize they have a problem as severely as they actually do. And then once you can diagnose that and treat it, it's great. But using a hearing test, use according to Medicare, if you're a Medicare provider, offering a free hearing test is a violation of their rules because they prohibit prohibit offering free services as something to induce or generate other services. So in this example, hearing aids. Um, so you cannot offer free hearing tests to people to draw them into your practice. It's just something I see in like newspapers and stuff. And I'm like, you can't do that. That's against the rules. So just keep that in mind too. Yeah, no, that's, um, we can't do a screen and then say you failed the screen and yet, and then self-refer back. Oh, by the way, you need speech therapy. Yes, exactly. That, it's the same principle. And, and that's and that's tricky in private practice for SLPs doing community work because I've gone in to do, I went into a daycare one time and I saw free screenings with like another private practice company. And I was like, that's cool. But, you know, I know I knew the person. And so like, luckily, like, you know, I saw the paperwork going out and it was very above board how they did it. Right. Sure. Like, they had everything documented in the event that your child fails the screen, please speak with your physician and speak with the state early intervention system and blah, blah, blah. Now, most people would automatically go back and, hey, you screen them. Can you just do the services? But she had it written so that it was all appropriate, right? Yeah. Um, okay. And then one last piece that comes up a lot in private practice, um, da, 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 it's Principles of Ethics 1, number D, individuals shall not misrepresent the credentials of aides, assistants, technicians, support personnel, students, research interns, clinical fellows, or any others under their supervision. Okay, so in the world of private practice, a lot of times, like if I come in um, and I'm doing the therapy and they're like, oh yeah, well, our other therapist was here. And I'm like, well, what other therapist? They're like, oh, the other speech therapist. They could be confused or our other, our, our PT was here. Well, it turns out it's a PTA, it's a CODA, it's mm -hmm. an SLPA, or it's the early interventionist. And those individuals are not clarifying their role on the team. Yeah. So that's, but that gets very confusing for the family when they're not taught that, or they don't understand that the person doing the services is not the fully licensed individual. Yeah. So highly, highly recommend that if you were, and you know, bless them. I mean, I have one family that I worked with for years and they're like, oh yeah, well we have PT on Friday with the PT. And I'm like, PTA, 
it's the PT. And they're like, yeah, yeah, same thing. And I'm like, literally not the same thing. (laughs) But the family members and the caregivers and the patients themselves need to know that because an SLPA, nor a CODA, nor a PTA, they're not allowed. And I'm assuming that this also goes out for audiology assistant. They're not allowed to make a change in the plan of care. They can only stick to the plan of care as has been written by the fully licensed individual practicing at the highest level of their scope. So that has to be very clear for all members involved on the interprofessional practice team. That's, that's, but I see that happen way so often. Also, please, if you are supervising an SLPA, make sure that you know what your state guidelines are. Do not take at face value the word of your superior that, oh, you just have to do the eval and that's it. And just come back in a couple months, write the plan of care. Your state licensure has laid out how many times you, after like it's in South Carolina, it's um, I think seven sessions and then you have to go back on the seventh session. So there's six sessions and then you go back on the seventh session to update and make sure that the plan of care is being adhered to document any progress changes and those kind of things. So yeah. y- you have to make sure that you're doing that because that's another biggie that I see in the world of private practice. That's sure problematic. So we went so far over Dakota and we were worried about like filling an hour. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to talk about. Yes. Oh my God. It was so much. Okay. All right. I, I, you're fantastic. This is, this is delightful. Stop. So I'm so glad you taught these kids and they're like, Michelle, you got to meet him. He's wonderful. All right. If folks, if folks want to learn more from you, because there's a lot of SLPs that, treat individuals with hearing loss this is not what i do but like i know how to get them to those people how do they how do they find you how do they reach you give us all the details please sir yes so the best place to reach me is probably going to be instagram but we also have a facebook page um through our podcast so the the instagram is at on the ear podcast on the ear podcast and then you can just search on the ear podcast on facebook and you can find me there um my wife does run the social media accounts i mean i'm in there too but like she's the one making the content and she does a great job there's we do like tips every tuesday and then research updates on wednesdays and we're uh we release a podcast episode every other week and it's not just audiology it's you know just hearing and communication in general so we've had a research SLP in the past who was speaking on hearing loss and literacy, which was really a great episode. I recommend you go back and check out, but yeah, just we're talking all things, audiology, hearing loss, communication in general, hopefully having um, a fantastic podcaster. You guys might be familiar with um, Miss Michelle Dawson on a future episode. So maybe be on the lookout for that, but you know, otherwise, yeah, on the ear podcast is probably the best way to reach me. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. Well, um, sit tight, hang on. And I am going to switch this over to questions. Also, everybody that's listening, it's the last episode of the year, y'all. Yay. Yay. We, we survived 2020. And I know I've heard so much, so many jokes about how terrible 2020 was, but our stars have been so blessed this year because at the end of the year, at the end of the day, we got to be with the ones that we loved may not be as close as we wanted, but we were still there and we got to help the least of these as we've been called to do. Right. 
So um, from everybody at First Bite, from all of Pack Dawson and Miss Dogwood, who is surprisingly quiet this episode, um, thank you for being a part of this journey. And I hope that 2021 brings to you joy and laughter and growth and, and grace. And grace for understanding that we all survived this pandemic together and you know it was harder on some of us than on others so reach out phone a friend check on them tell them that they're appreciated and that's it that's all i got because it always makes me emotional the last episode of the year always makes me emotional (laughs) (laughs) but yay Yay. All all right hang on one second dakota okay all right feeding matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.